I want to begin by sharing with you a couple of things that may have puzzled you if you're a believer in Jesus. Uh, these are things that you look at and you just go, what, why, why is this? Uh, one is uh, an example from just this week. Uh, it was learned that the Biden administration uh, actually gave names of their Afghan allies to the Taliban in order to facilitate the Taliban's helping these people get to the airport so that they could be evacuated. That's a head-scratcher, and you wonder why, and I'm going to explain it to you. Another one is uh, something of, of a longer term. We, um, for all of human history, but for the last decade or so, have largely, and this is true over every culture, over every part of the planet, over all time, except for the last 10 years, have believed that a person's biological sex and their gender are the same. Now, to suggest that that is true can, in some cases, cause you to lose your job or can cause you to be uh, treated as a pariah, uh, an enemy of virtue and of loving people. Um, <clears throat> why? Why is that? The answer to the puzzles of both of these is found in the book of Judges. At the end of it, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is, in fact, the world of individualism that explains both of these things. Uh, our pastors read books together. We just finished reading a 426-page book. Aren't you proud of us? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's, it's a book by a guy named Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, he traces how we got from where we were to where we are. And he introduces us, and I've mentioned this last week, to a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Jean Rousseau, who lived in the 1700s. Uh, let me explain that Rousseau's view of individualism explains both the present administration's decision-making vis-a-vis the Taliban and the rise of the transgender rights movement. Rousseau's view of the nature of human corruption is that it is something that is created and fostered by social conditions, not considered something innate. So crime and criminality is the result of social pressure, not because of some internal tendency to depravity. For Rousseau, natural humanity is fundamentally sound the sinful acts come from social pressures and conditioning. A person becomes evil by the pressures that society place on him or her. 
Rousseau blames society for his sin because people are basically good at birth and then are perverted by external forces. It is this aspect of Rousseau's philosophy that explains the administration's giving up of names to their collab to, to the Taliban uh, because they believe that they are intrinsically good and only evil by society or the world pressures placed upon them. And if you just treat them honorably and correctly, they will respond honorably and correctly. A second aspect of Rousseau's philosophy is that human beings at their earliest stages possess the first great love, which is self-love, love of self. Self-love is a natural state of good, leading individuals to seek self-preservation. Self-love evokes empathy and pity. And so uh, it is out of your love for yourself that you have feelings. And those feelings, rather than reason, are the things to be um, generated. Uh, it's kind of up to debate as to what things exactly should evoke our empathy and sympathy. But generally, it's anyone, for whatever reason, is considered an underdog. The one who is truly free, according to Rousseau, is the one who is free to be himself. We might recast this and say the one who's shaped by society and not by his own conscience is truly a slave. This is all from Truman's book. It's following the inner voice that causes one to be truly free, truly authentic. And so whether it is from Disney movies or to the state where we are right now with the movement of transgender rights, following one's inner voice leads to genuine freedom and true authenticity. If the state of nature is ideal and if society corrupts, then history becomes a history of corruption and oppression. Have you noticed that every study of history that's done these days is a study of all of the evils and the problems and the oppressions of the past? That's part of Rousseau's philosophy. Charles Taylor, an interpreter of Rousseau, says it's the idea that I'm free to decide for myself what concerns me rather than being shaped by external influences. I'm free to do what I want without inf interference by others because that's compatible uh, um, because that is compatible with my being shaped. Self-determining freedom demands that I break hold of all external impositions and decide for myself. It is these two things, the belief that sin derives from society, not from something inside us. Wrong is external to us. And that we, if we were just allowed to be ourselves, would be filled with self-love and empathy and pity, and it would, the world would be a wonderful place. And that history is only an expression of the oppressions of society and the evils that they have done, and our empathy and sympathy demands that we, in a retributive, judgmental way, judge the past. 
Rousseau's philosophy, he actually lived very, very consistently. Rousseau had five children, and because children denied him self-love, he had all five sent at birth to orphanages. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 15, where we will meet up with a man who is living this same individualistic life. And what we will discover is that pursuing individual dreams is not pursuing God. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't once in a while an individual dream that someone has that aligns with pursuing God, but that's accidental if, we're, if our focus is pursuing individual dreams. What we ought to do is pursue God, and then He shapes our dreams. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture this morning? Judges 15, we'll read verses 1 through 8 to start with, and then we'll make our way through the text. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Please have a seat. It is individualism that makes revenge justifiable. Uh, you recall last week in chapter 14, Samson marries a Philistine woman from Timnah, and in the process, there's a drunken fest, and Samson makes a bet with the Philistines, and because they cheat, he loses the bet, and he goes home in a huff, and the father of the bride gives the bride to the best man. That's the background to our story here in chapter 15. Samson decides that his rejection of his marriage is not permanent. He wants her again. So he goes back in May or late May, early June at wheat harvest with the ancient equivalent of a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates, which is a young goat, okay? Uh, there was a fellow in the first service who came to me and asked if he might be able to do that replacement. I said, only if your wife is a Philistine. <clears throat> uh, it's not known uh, when the wedding took place, but it looks like it was four to eight weeks earlier at barley harvest, which is another reason to see Philistine beer making in view at the wedding that we looked at last week. Let's look at the map once again, and you'll see that 
Here is where Samson's from. Here's Timnah, where that wedding took place. And then there's all the episode that happens here with the 300 foxes that go down into Philistine land. Off to our far left is the Mediterranean Sea. And then Samson will retreat here to this area up in the hill country called Etam. And just off of our map to the right is the Dead Sea. So we're kind of between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea here. Um, <clears throat> ironically enough, let me, oh, let me back up one more. And about 10 miles to the north of this Timnah is a town called Gezer, a very famous city in Israel. And at Gezer, archaeologists found a calendar. Uh, this calendar uh, dates to about one or 200 years after Samson, but it's a calendar that says two months for planting, two months late sowing, one month cutting flax, one month reaping barley, one month reaping and measuring grain, two months pruning, and one month of summer fruit. There's a close-up of it uh, that dates to just one or 200 years after Samson, which in archaeological terms is like right contemporaneous. Uh, Archaeologists are unsure if this is a children's song or perhaps a folk song that they sang around the campfire or maybe it was a tax reminder of when to turn in your quarterly tax returns of when the harvests were, right? Uh, regardless, the fact is that there's something very connected to these seasons in Judges 15 and what we find in the ground very close by Samson's world. The father refuses to give Samson his wife back, reasoning that he thought Samson had utterly rejected her and the father had given his daughter in marriage to the best man. The father is actually trying to salvage a bad situation here. And he's trying to think win-win, and so he offers the girl's sister. He even attempts to reason. She's even more beautiful. But it doesn't matter what the father says. The facts do not matter. It doesn't matter that the sister may in fact be more beautiful and more attractive in, in every way. What matters is the individual and what Samson wants as an individual is not what Samson is getting. And so Samson is mad. To that end, this means that the only option for Samson is war, but it's guerrilla warfare, like everything else that Samson does. It's personal. He never calls out Israelite forces all through our text in Samson. In the judges, you have these judges that are raised up and they call out the tribes and they go and fight against the enemy, right? But in Samson's story, there is never calling out the Israelites to join in a regular warfare with their enemies. Instead, it's Samson acting as a lone individual agent. It's personal. He goes it alone. Samson sincerely believes that he himself is completely innocent in this affair and that everybody else has wronged him. <laughs> Doubtless, if Samson had gone to a modern-day secular counselor, he would be able to describe the abuse that he suffered from his parents, 
the way that society, Israelite society, had done him wrong, and then the abuse he had suffered from his friends, and then from the Philistines, and then from the Philistine father. And so he pours, and also probably from the Philistine woman, he pours all of this attention on the Philistines, I will be innocent when I do them harm. He's going to get them back. This idea of eye for eye in Latin is called lex talionis, eye for eye. And lex talionis is a tough way to live, though it remains a way of life in many parts of the Middle East. All lose and some die with this method of human relationship. There is no end. There's no end to the wrongs back and forth. It's generational in the memories. You can go to places in the Middle East and people will show you paperwork that date back into the 1400s that show the grievances that have been done to them. This is what's behind much of the grievances that are being resurrected today. That these are real grievances is in many cases beyond question. At issue, however, is how far back do we go in asserting that the sinfulness of sin needs some redress? The further back we go, the harder it will be for there to be an end to the sense of outrage at the injustice. Samson declares that no matter what he does, no matter how excessive, he will be innocent. And that's the measure for all eye-for-eye grievances, isn't it? No matter what I do now, because of the wrong that has been done to me, I can do whatever I want and I will be right. I will be justified. It's interesting, isn't it, that what we do as sinners is never in our own eyes as bad as what gets done to us. Have you noticed that? That what you do to wrong someone else never looks as bad to you as the wrong that gets done to you, ever. And in desperate times, there's plenty of sin to go around. I want you to notice in verses four and five the painstaking method of Samson's revenge. How long does it take to capture 300 foxes alive? I mean, haven't been a fox catcher, but I hear they're kind of tough to find, let alone catch. How, how do you tie foxes together in pairs? How, how, how do you do that? What is the process by which one attaches torches to the tails of 150 pairs of foxes? I thought I would ask the sportsman's small group to do this to illustrate it for us, but they, they turned me down on that. How do you set fire to the torches so that they all more or less go running together? You know, that, that seems crazy. And why fire? Now, that's one I do know. Back in chapter 14, verse 15, the Philistines threatened Samson's Timnite woman 
with fire, she and her father with fire, if she couldn't figure out from Samson what the answer to the riddle was. We'll burn you and your father's house down with fire is what they said. So now Samson has probably heard about this. So what's he going to do? At the greatest, most vulnerable season in the Philistine alluvial plain, which looks very much like central Illinois, at the height of the harvest, the fields are golden brown and they've actually started to gather some harvest. Now he turns 150 pairs of foxes with burning tails and I'm guessing they didn't go marching out in rows, right? I think that they just kind of went in mayhem, right, and burned up the Philistine grain. And on top of that, some of them went into the olive orchards, and when the olive trees burned down, that's not just one season ruined, that's generational. He has orchestrated this event to cause the greatest possible damage. It's harvest time, grain ready to harvest, standing in the fields, some's already harvested, stacked, ready to process. The foxes head into the olive groves and set them on fire. The Philistines, verse 6, are alarmed and seek an investigation. Investigate who's done this. It was Samson. Why did this happen? Because Samson was legitimately married to the Timnite woman and the dad took his wife and gave her to his companion. What do we do as Philistines to take care of this situation? We'll burn the woman and her father with fire. Oh, there we go. They threatened with fire. Samson gives them harm with fire. And what do they do? They kill the father and the daughter with fire. That is, we do eye for eye. Lex talionis. Just as Samson burned our grain, we will take care of the problem by burning this family. Now, are they doing this to punish Samson? He, of course, is going to think so. Or are they doing this thinking that they're punishing this family for the injustice to Samson, that they're, they're hoping by this to make peace with Samson? It's uncertain, but Samson certainly takes it as option number one, that they're doing it to punish him. Verses 7 and 8, Samson, now even angrier at what the Philistines have done to his Philistine wife and father-in-law, takes aim at even greater revenge. So individualistically taking what he thinks is control of the situation, verse 7, Samson says in effect, okay, now I'll take one more act of revenge and then this will be over. Have you ever heard somebody say that? There's just one more thing I'll do and then we're done. How foolish it is to think that. And so he kills some Philistines. He struck them hip and thigh. It's a wrestling term that means he dominated them. He dominated them with a great blow. And then he goes and stays in the cleft of the rock at Etam. What are some ways that we should think about this for our own lives? Well, we live in an even more individualistic age where reason has gone out the window. All we got is Rousseau feelings and individualism. That's all we got. People make their own awful decisions and then when faced with the consequences of those decisions, seek out to sort out an answer that causes them to avoid the consequences altogether and then when those consequences continue, they're outraged at the injustice that they feel at society. People do wrong, they get the consequences for the wrong, they got to blame somebody else. They can't look in the mirror. 
because the individual is never wrong. Note the collateral damage once you begin to live out this eye-for-eye mentality. In particular, think of this poor Philistine young lady. First, she'd given to Samson. No idea that she had anything to say about it. Next, she's threatened with fire for her and her family if she doesn't turn out Samson's uh, uh, riddle. Then she nags Samson to death. Next, she's given to the best man. Finally, she and her family are burned. The collateral damage of eye for eye. And there is no end to the grievances. There's no end to the retaliations. There is no end to the scaling up of those retaliations. This is why, my friends, I believe that politically conservative Christians are at a crossroads. I recognize there are some that are breathing fire and have justifiable reason for it, but that is not the way of the cross. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty five: when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Wow. Meditate on that verse. The way of the cross escapes the cycle of lex talionis. For when we remember that there is a king who's coming and our citizenship is not here, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, that enables us to escape the tit-for-tat lex talionis way of living. There is an unbelievably difficult path of forgiveness to change the narrative. That's why Jesus said the way is narrow. The gate is small that leads to salvation. It's an incredibly easy path of recalling and rehearsing grievances. Anyone can do that. Broad is the road. Wide is the gate. It leads to death and many go that way. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over the us? What then is this that you have done to us? And they said to him, and he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Revenge seeking leads to strange bargains. The Philistines come up into the hill country and attack Lehi, and Judah doesn't understand why. They're thinking, 
we thought we had a deal with the Philistines. We thought they would be nice guys. What are they doing up here? The Philistines explain, look, all we're seeking is revenge for the evil that they assert Samson did to them. Samson said, I'll be avenged and then I'll quit, verse 7. But now the Philistines say in verse 9, we have come up, or verse 10, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Lex talionis, eye for eye. So, verse 11, the men of Judah now investigate Samson, and they have 3,000 men. (laughs) Now, whether this is three military contingents of somewhat less than 1,000, because it could mean military unit instead of 1,000, but whether it's three military units or 3,000, it's a lot of guys, and they are more intent to hand Samson over to the Philistines than they are to fight the Philistines. Isn't that crazy? Samson's personal feud has escalated now into an international crisis. This is what Daryl Block has to say. And the Judean response is disappointed. Instead of rallying their troops to defend their countryman Samson, or even saying to Samson, hey, lead the way, we're with you, we'll go fight these guys that have invaded us. Instead, what do they do? They acquiesce. They they say, we're here to hand you over to the Philistines. They'd rather deliver Samson to the Philistines, the hands of the enemy, and live under that enemy's domination than fulfill the mandate that God had given Israel to possess the land. They'd rather surrender. Their argument is interesting. Don't you know that we're on the weak side here? Our negotiating power is nil because our military is so much weaker. What is this that you have done to us, they say to Samson. Note the unintended consequences of of Samson's individualistic revenge is that the Israelite people as a whole are suffering. And Samson's response is almost identical to what the Philistines said in verse 10, we've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Look at the end of verse 11, Samson says to the men of Judah, as they did to me, so have I done to them. (laughs) It's the same thing the Philistines has said. Those bent on revenge against each other are more alike than we can ever imagine. So verses 12 and 13, the weaker Israelites now announce their intentions to Samson to arrest him and to hand him over to the Philistines. We're going to bind you and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson says, okay, just promise you won't attack me yourselves. Samson wants to keep the conflict narrow in scope. He wouldn't want to fight against his own countrymen. So the Judean contingent agrees. They bind him with two new ropes and bring him out of hiding. Why the new ropes? Well, the idea is that Samson is tightly bound and cannot get away. And here we find something interesting that I'll spend a little bit more time on next week. Um, 
Where does Samson get his strength? Have you ever imagined what Samson looks like? Does he in your own imagination look like something like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Scott Burkle, you know. Um, I would suggest to you that he doesn't look that way. Because next week what we're going to see that they're, they're puzzling over what is the secret to his strength. They're not going around going, well, we obviously know he's strong. I mean, look at the physical specimen of the man. Of course he can do this. No, they're, 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 head, they're scratching their head. How does this guy do what he does? Let's think about a couple of applications here. Once you engage in revenge, my friends, you're not in control of the outcome. You think you are. Samson thought he was. One more thing and then I'll be done. I promise. But you're not in control because the other side is also got their own individualistic ideas, don't they? You're not the one who says when the revenge seeking is over. So let's think about that in terms of your marriage. Your husband has done you wrong. So you're going to do to him. Or your wife has done you wrong. So you're going to do to her. And it escalates back and forth and back and forth. Who says when it's over? I've seen families broken apart because of things done on one side of the family. You're like, oh yeah, well they did this and they got a whole long laundry list of the things. So we are going to do this. And of course, the things that you do are always measured and this far and then I'm done. And it's the other side that's done worse. It's always the other side that's doing the worst. When will we engage, my friends, the way of the cross? Let's look at verses 14 through 20. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. They're pretty excited. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramat Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called Enhakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years." God accomplishes his purposes even through sinful revenge-seeking. Now, this doesn't mean that sinful revenge-seeking is not sinful. It is. 
Rather, it means that God's purposes cannot be thwarted by sin. God uses even sin to bring about His purposes. The Philistines, in verse 14, think they've won a diplomatic victory. Uh, Israel has given Samson into their hands. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, and as we've noted that the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, this means it is a miraculous empowerment for a specific purpose. It is not that now Samson is a man of virtue and is a holy man. That purpose is not to exalt Israel or Samson in their sin. Rather, the coming of the Spirit of God is to use Samson as a means of judgment against the Philistines. Just because God uses Samson against the Philistines does not make Samson the righteous party here. The specific way in which the Spirit works here is that Samson is endowed with unusual strength and the ropes become like silly string. His bonds melt off his hands. But being so empowered by God does not make you holy, as we see immediately in verse 15. Do you remember the three vows of a Nazarite? Don't eat, drink wine or strong drink. Don't cut your hair and don't touch anything dead. Samson has these bonds melt off of him and then he's ready for battle, right? And what does he do? It says there in verse 15, he found a fresh bone of a donk, jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck a thousand men. Once again, he's touching something dead in violation of his Nazarite vows. And note the way that the text describes his deliberate disobedience. It doesn't have to say, it could have just said he found a fresh bone of a donkey and with it he struck a thousand men. But it doesn't say that. It adds these specific words to describe his specific disobedience. And he saw, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He put out his hand and he took it. The word take is used in the Samson narrative to describe marriage. He's one with the jawbone. And he kills a thousand Philistines. And just like at his Philistine party where he shouted out a rap as his um, riddle, he now crafts another rap. This one with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. The word heaps in Hebrew is exactly the same letters, just different vowels, as the word donkey. He's using it on purpose. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And the heaps here are the Philistine bodies. He's killed them with this fresh jawbone and he's piling them up. And then he breaks out this rap song, and as soon as he's done, he does the ancient equivalent of a mic drop. Look at verse 17. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. Boom! Boom! 
And the name of the place, Ramat Lehi, means the hill of the jawbone. Some commentators have nicknamed it Jawbone Hill or Jawbone Heights. That's the name given to the mound of Philistine bodies. And now we see Samson's first prayer. You would think it would be, O God, glorify your name in all these things. May your honor and glory be established in all the heavens and the earth. That is not his prayer. He's not concerned about his people. He's not concerned about the work yet to be done. He's not concerned about the glory of God. Samson now offers a very selfish prayer. Look at it, verse 18. You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant, by the way, right? It's like, God, we're cooperating together. No. And then notice the selfish prayer. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Almost demandingly praying to God, get me water. Now, I have no doubt that if you kill a thousand Philistines with a fresh jawbone of a donkey, you'll get thirsty. But his selfishness is appalling, is it not? There's no mention of the rest of Israel. And he's still, everything here is referenced in terms of the Philistines. Notice verse 20. He judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. Samson never brings about a victory for Israel over Philistia. He just does these guerrilla things. That's, that's all he does. Let's think about some applications. We should be very careful at attributing righteousness to an instrument of God to judge a guilty party. Just because God uses someone or something does not mean that that something or someone is righteous. It just means God uses it. Sometimes people want to do that. They see someone being used by God and therefore they think that that means that that person is uh, approved by God. Not so. Nations can develop a habit of committing national suicide. The nation of Israel has essentially surrendered to their Philistine invaders. God, out of grace, raises up a selfish and in so many ways evil man. And God is gracious to him, though he has little thought of God outside of what he expects and almost demands that God do for him. This demonstrates, rather than that there's something to be approved here of Samson at this point in his life, it demonstrates that God's agenda cannot fail. His purposes will be accomplished. In the meantime, we should never hope for a cad like Samson to lead us. Instead, we should long for one more like the true king, our captain, who leads us on the way of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you may cause us not to seek retaliation or revenge, 
that we may learn this lesson from Samson, that there's no end. That we would recognize that we are swimming in an individualistic Rousseauian age. And we don't even know all the ways that that's impacting our thinking. Help us to be awakened to it of how we are so dominated by that thinking. Lord, we would pray that we would recognize the way of the cross is a way of forgiving other people because we remember how much you've forgiven us. Help us to see our sin greater than anyone else's and to mourn over it before your holy righteous throne and to say to you, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. And Lord, I pray that where there are marriages or families that are broken into a tit-for-tat retaliation of one against another, Lord, would you, would you cause even just one party of that to stop and to forgive? And we pray that where that happens and really sick and awful evil is being done, you would bring about genuine repentance because without both repentance and forgiveness, there can't be reconciliation. And so we pray for that. Lord, I pray that those who do not know Jesus personally would see that there is a way out of our individualistic lifestyles of recognizing our, that we're somehow uh, uh, the king of our fates. We recognize that we're not. We, recognizing, we recognize that we're a sinner not because we're made so by society or because we have been oppressed or by things that have been done to us in the past. We are sinners because of our hearts. We have sinful hearts. And we ask you, Lord, by the death of your Son, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, to forgive us of our sin and to give us new life. And that you would help us out of that trapped cycle of retaliation, eye for eye, lex talionis. May we look ever to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray, amen.